section eighteen of a history of our own times volume three by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter thirty eight on the true faith of a christian part two baron rothschild quietly fell back to his old position he sat in one of the seats under the gallery a place to which strangers are admitted but where also members occasionally sit he did not contest the matter any further mr david salomons was inclined for a rougher and bolder course he was elected for greenwich in eighteen fifty one and he presented himself as baron rothschild had done the same thing followed he refused to say the words on the true faith of a christian and he was directed to withdraw he did withdraw he sat below the bar a few evenings after a question was put to the government by a member friendly to the admission of jews sir benjamin hall afterwards lord lanover if mr salomons should take his seat would the government sue him for the penalties provided by the act of parliament in order that the question of right might be tried by a court of law lord john russell replied on the part of the government that they did not intend to take any proceedings in fact implied that they considered it no affair of theirs then sir benjamin hall announced that mr salomons felt he had no alternative but to take his seat and let the question of right be tested in that way forthwith to the amazement and horror of steady old constitutional members mr salomons who had been sitting below the bar calmly got up walked into the sacred precincts of the house and took his seat among the members a tumultuous scene followed half the house shouted indignantly to mr salomons to withdraw withdraw the other half called out encouragingly to him to keep his place the perplexity was indescribable what is to be done with a quiet and respectable gentleman who insists that he is a member of parliament comes and takes his seat in the house and will not withdraw to be sure if he were an absolute intruder he could be easily removed by the sergeant-at-arms and his assistants but in such a case unless the intruder were a lunatic he would hardly think of keeping his place when he had been bidden by authority to take himself off mr salomons however had undoubtedly been elected member for greenwich by a considerable majority his constituents believed him to be their lawful representative and in fact had obtained from him a promise that if elected he would actually take his seat even then perhaps something might have been done if the house in general had been opposed to the claim of mr salomons and of greenwich when lord cochrane escaped from prison and presented himself in the house from which he had been expelled he too was ordered to withdraw he too refused to do so the speaker directed that he should be removed by force cochrane had a giant's strength and on this occasion he used it like a giant he struggled hard against the efforts of many officials to remove him and some of the woodwork of the benches was actually torn from its place before the gallant seaman could be got out of the house but in the case of lord cochrane the general feeling of the house was with the authorities and against the expelled member who however happened to be in the right while the house was in the wrong the case of mr salomons was very different many members were of opinion and eminent lawyers were among them 
that in the strictest and most technical view of the law he was entitled to take his seat many more were convinced that the principle which excluded him was stupid and barbarous and that the course he was at present taking was necessary for the purpose of obtaining its immediate repeal therefore any idea of expelling mr salomons was out of the question the only thing that could be done was to set to work and debate the matter lord john russell moved a resolution to the effect that mr salomons be ordered to withdraw lord john russell it need hardly be said was entirely in favour of the admission of jews but thought mr salomon's course irregular mr bernal osborne moved an amendment declaring mr salomon's entitled to take his seat a series of irregular discussions varied and enlivened by motions for adjournment took place and mr salomon's not only voted in some of the divisions but actually made a speech he spoke calmly and well and was listened to with great attention he explained that in the course he had taken he was acting in no spirit of contumacy or presumption and with no disregard for the dignity of the house but that he had been lawfully elected and that he felt bound to take his seat for the purpose of asserting his own rights and those of his constituents he intimated also that he would withdraw if just sufficient force were used to make him feel that he was acting under coercion the motion that he be ordered to withdraw was carried the speaker requested mr salomons to withdraw mr salomons held his place the speaker directed the sergeant-at-arms to remove mr salomons the sergeant-at-arms approached mr salomons and touched him on the shoulder and mr salomons then quietly withdrew the farce was over it was evident to every one that mr salomons had virtually gained his object and that something must soon be done to get the house of commons and the country out of the difficulty it is curious that even in ordering him to withdraw the speaker called mr salomons the honourable member mr salomons did well to press his rights in that practical way upon the notice of the house it is one of the blots upon our parliamentary system that a great question like that of the removal of jewish disabilities is seldom settled upon its merits parliament rarely bends to the mere claims of reason and justice some pressure has almost always to be put on it to induce it to see the right its tendency is always to act exactly as mr salomon's himself formerly did in this case to yield only when sufficient pressure has been put on it to signify coercion catholic emancipation was carried by such a pressure the promoters of the sunday trading bill yield to a riot in hyde park a tory government turned reformers in obedience to a crowd who pulled down the railing of the same enclosure a chancellor of the exchequer modifies his budget in deference to a demonstration of match-selling boys and girls in all these instances it was right to make the concession but the concession was not made because it was right the irish home rulers or some of them at least are convinced that they will carry home rule in the end by the mere force of a pressure brought to bear on parliament and their expectation is justified by all previous experience they have been told often enough that they must not expect to carry it by argument if parliamentary institutions do really come to be discredited in this country as many people love to predict 
one especial reason will be this very experience on the part of the public that parliament has invariably conceded to pressure the reforms which it persistently denied to justice a reform is first refused without reason to be at last conceded without grace mr salomons acted wisely therefore for the cause he had at heart when he thrust himself upon the house of commons the course taken by baron rothschild was more dignified no doubt but it did not make much impression the victory seems to us to have been practically won when mr salomon sat down after having addressed the house of commons from his place among the members but it was not technically won just then nor for some time after two actions were brought against mr salomon's not by the government to recover penalties for his having unlawfully taken his seat one of the actions was withdrawn the object of both alike being to get a settlement of the legal question for which one trial would be as good as twenty the action came on for trial in the court of exchequer on december ninth eighteen fifty one before mr baron martin and a special jury baron martin suggested that as the question at issue was one of great importance a special case should be prepared for the decision of the full court this was done and the case came before the court in january eighteen fifty two the issue really narrowed itself to this were the words on the true faith of a christian merely a form of affirmation or were they purposely inserted in order to obtain a profession of christian faith did not the framers of the measure merely put in such words as at the moment seemed to them most proper to secure a true declaration from the majority of those to be sworn and with the understanding that in exceptional cases other forms of asseveration might be employed as more suited to other forms of faith or were the words put in for the express purpose of making it certain that none but christians should take the oath we know as a matter of fact that the words were not put in with any such intention no one was thinking about the jews when the asseveration was thus constructed still the court of exchequer decided by three votes to one that the words must be held in law to constitute a specially christian oath which could be taken by no one but a christian and without taking which no one could be a member of parliament of that parliament which had had bolingbroke for a leader and gibbon for a distinguished member the legal question then being settled there were renewed efforts made to get rid of the disabilities by an act of parliament the house of commons continued to pass bills to enable jews to sit in parliament and the house of lords continued to throw them out lord john russell who had taken charge of the measure introduced his bill early in eighteen fifty eight the bill was somewhat peculiar in its construction on a former occasion the house of lords found another excuse for not passing a measure for the same purpose in the fact that it mixed up a modification of the oath of supremacy with the question of the relief of the jews in the present measure the two questions were kept separate the bill proposed to reconstruct the oath altogether some obsolete words about the pretender and the stuart family were to be taken out the asseverations relating to succession supremacy and allegiance were to be condensed into one oath to which were added on the true faith of a christian thus far the measure merely reconstructed the form of oath so as to bring it into accord with the existing conditions of things but then there came a separate clause in the bill 
providing that where the oath had to be administered to a Jew, the words on the true faith of a Christian might be left out. This was a very sensible and simple way of settling the matter. It provided a rational form of oath for all sects alike. It got rid of obsolete anomalies, and it likewise relieved the Jews from the injustice which had been unintentionally imposed on them. Unfortunately, the very convenience of the form in which the bill was drawn only put, as it will be seen, a new facility into the hands of the anti-reformers in the House of Lords for again endeavouring to get rid of it. Lord John Russell had no difficulty with the House of Commons. He had brought up his bill in good time, in order that it might reach the House of Lords as quickly as possible, and it passed a second reading in the Commons without any debate. When it came up to the House of Lords, the majority simply struck out the particular clause relating to the Jews. This made the bill of no account whatever for the purpose it specially had in view. The Commons, on the motion of Lord John Russell, refused to assent to the alteration made by the Lords, and appointed a committee to draw up a statement of their reasons for refusing to agree to it. On the motion of Mr. Duncombe, it was actually agreed that Baron Rothschild should be a member of the committee, although a legal decision had declared him not to be a member of the House. During the debates to which all this led, Lord Lucan made a suggestion of compromise in the House of Lords, which proved successful. He recommended the insertion of a clause in the bill allowing either house to modify the form of oath according to its pleasure. Lord John Russell objected to this way of dealing with a great question, but did not feel warranted in refusing the proposed compromise. A bill was drawn up with the clause suggested, and it was rattled, if we may use such an expression, through both houses. It passed with the oaths bill which the Lords had mutilated, and which now stood as an independent measure. A Jew, therefore, might be a member of the House of Commons, if it chose to receive him, and might be shut out of the House of Lords if that House did not think fit to let him in. More than that, the House of Commons might change its mind at any moment, and by modifying the form of oath, shut out the Jews again, or shut out any new Jewish candidates. Of course such a condition of things as that could not endure. An act passed not long after which consolidated the acts referring to oaths of allegiance, abjuration, and supremacy, and enabled Jews on all occasions whatever to omit the words on the true faith of a Christian. Thus the Jew was at last placed on a position of political equality with his Christian fellow-subjects, and an anomaly and a scandal was removed from our legislation. About the same time as that which saw Baron Rothschild admitted to take his seat in the House of Commons, the absurd property qualification for members of Parliament was abolished. This ridiculous system originally professed to secure that no man should be a member of the House of Commons who did not own a certain amount of landed property. The idea of defining a man's fitness to sit in Parliament according to his possession of landed property was in itself preposterous, but such as the law was, it was evaded every day. It had not the slightest real force. Fictitious conveyances were issued as a matter of course. Anyone who desired a seat in Parliament could easily find some friend or patron who would convey to him by formal deed the fictitious ownership of landed property enough to satisfy the requirements of the law. This was done usually with as little pretense at concealment as the borrowing of an umbrella. 
it was perfectly well known to everybody that a great many members of the house of commons did not possess and did not even pretend to possess a single acre of land their own property what made the thing more absurd was that men who were rich enough to spend thousands of pounds in contesting boroughs and counties had often to go through this form of having a fictitious conveyance made to them because they did not happen to have invested any part of their wealth in land great city magnates known for their wealth and known in many cases for their high personal honour as well had to submit to this foolish ceremonial the property qualification was a device of the reign of Anne. The evasions of it became so many and so notorious that in George II's time an act was passed making it necessary for every member to take an oath that he possessed the requisite amount of property. In the present reign, a declaration was substituted for the oath, and it was provided that if a man had not landed property, it would be enough for him to prove that he had funded a property to the same amount, six hundred pounds a year for counties and three hundred pounds for boroughs the manufacture of fictitious qualifications went on as fast as ever there were many men in good position earning large incomes by a profession or otherwise who yet had not realized money enough to put them in possession of a property of six hundred pounds or three hundred pounds a year it might take ten thousand pounds to secure an income of three hundred pounds a year twenty thousand pounds to secure six hundred pounds a year scores of members of parliament were well known not to have any such means to make the anomaly more absurd it should be noted that there was no property qualification in scotland and the scotch members were then as now remarkable for their respectability and intelligence members for the university too were elected without a property qualification Mr. Locke King stated in the House of Commons that after every general election there were from fifty to sixty cases in which it was found that persons had declared themselves to be possessed of the requisite qualification who were notoriously not in possession of it. Many men, too, it was well known, were purposely qualified by wealthy patrons in order that they might sit in Parliament as mere nominees and political servants. As usual with Parliament, this anomaly was allowed to go on until a sudden scandal made its abolition necessary one luckless person who probably had no position and few friends was actually prosecuted for having made a false declaration as to his property qualification he had been a little more indiscreet or a little more open in his performance than other people and he was pounced upon by old father antic the law this practically settled the matter Everyone knew that many other members of Parliament deserved, in point of fact, just as well as he, the three months' imprisonment to which he was sentenced. Mr. Locke King introduced a bill to abolish the property qualification hitherto required from the representatives of English and Irish constituencies, and it became law in a few days. End of section 18.